Yeah, it's really good working with Nick. He's really fun. He's kind of like a, a big kid. And Nick also wanted to hear from us and wanted to know our ideas. And uh, yeah, Daniel really clicks with Nick a lot. Hello and welcome to Too Much of Not Enough, a Silverchair podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Hedger, and in this episode, I'll be talking to a very, very, very special guest. He is the record producer, engineer, and mixer who has worked with Midnight Oil, Nick Cave, Kate Bush, In Excess, and Arcade Fire, just to name a few. But for our purposes, he's perhaps most well-known for producing Silverchair's albums, Freak Show, Neon Ballroom, and Young Modern. It's Mr. Nick Lornay. Nick was very generous with his time and knowledge during our conversation. I am absolutely stoked that he was keen to talk about Silverchair for an hour and a half or so. So I, for the most part, just let him hold court because everything he said was just so interesting. And I'm sure everyone who listens to this podcast will be as riveted as I was. Now, Australian internet speeds being what they are, and the fact that this was an international call means that at times the sound quality isn't what I would have envisioned, but it's nothing to fret over. So before we launch into my chat with Nick Lornay, let's just get some housekeeping out of the way. If you aren't already, please follow me on Instagram at Silverchair Podcast and Facebook at facebook.com slash silverchairpodcast. You can also email me at silverchairpodcast at gmail.com. If you are somehow listening to this without being subscribed, please subscribe. And while you're at it, I'd love for you to review the show on Apple Podcasts and rate it five stars. I know it's slightly more work to do a review, but it really helps other people find the show. So with all that out of the way, let's get to my conversation with Nick Lornay. So I feel like if you listen to my podcast, uh, my guest today truly needs no introduction, but just in case, he's the legendary producer who not only produced three Silverchair albums, but also worked with everyone from Kate Bush and Nick Cave to Maximo Park and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. Nick Lornay, welcome to Too Much of Not Enough, a Silverchair podcast. Thank you very much. It's um, lovely to be invited and uh, I'm very glad to be here. Fantastic. How are you these days? Uh, Nick is living in LA. How long have you been in LA now? Um, I I moved here about 20 years ago. And um, I'd been coming here for quite a while before that just to do different albums. Um, Actually, I I was flying over here from Sydney, where I lived uh, pretty much during all of the 90s. I lived in, in Sydney. And um, and then I was over here so much, and the recording studios here. Um, well, there were just so many recording studios, and it was just. Um, I think the biggest reason, actually, that that I ended up doing albums in LA was because 
English bands that wanted to work with me. Um, although the bands wanted to come to Australia, the record companies found it just a little bit too far. They were a little bit too worried about sending their bands, you know, literally the other side of the planet. And um, so they seemed to be fine with sending them to LA, which I guess is half the distance. So I'd fly half the distance, they'd fly half the distance, and I'd work in various recording studios here. And um, that I, I was honestly here more than I was at home in Sydney. And after a while, I just thought I, I should just move move to LA. And I've just uh, been here ever since. I ended up buying a house here about mm, ten years ago, I suppose. So, and um, I mean, LA is great. It's a uh, it's a very fun um, city to to work in and be in if you're doing music or film because it's all about that and and art actually it's yeah. become a really big art center now lots, lots of different uh you know performance art sculpt sculptor people painters it's it's just a mishmash of all that and it's i guess it's it's relatively cheap to live here and the weather's always good so and the outlets are there you know all the record companies and film companies yeah. are here so that that's what la is um so it's good so you so obviously when you were living in sydney that's when you sort of became first aware of silverchair but you actually have even an earlier history with the band don't you um you were in a way one of the discoverers of yeah the innocent criminals that's right that's uh but but yeah i was living in sydney at the time i probably hadn't been living there for long and i lived in this area of sydney called balgala heights which is near manly if you're familiar with with Sydney, yeah. and um, my one of my best friends there um, is Robert Hambling, who is a filmmaker, and he at that time was was uh, working for the, the TV show on um, SBS, uh, which was a late night music program that was really cool actually I, I i watched it often and he was um he he used to film the bands and do the interviews and stuff like that and then there was another person there who i can't remember her name but she would she would she was kind of the face of the program and and i would say robert hambling was more like the um you know the guy behind the scenes um yeah doing a lot of the work and um uh basically they ran a competition um to find a new band and new artists and the the prize uh for that competition was that they would film them and do a video for free um so what happened was they received loads and loads of cds uh in particular i think it yeah probably not so many cassettes but it was it was that era of cds yeah lots of demos and cds came in and they hadn't really thought it through it's like who's going to listen to all these cds you know (laughs) there's probably only three staff working on this tv program um what was the tv program called so it's called nomad that's it nomad 
that's it. Yeah. And, and really, it's it's uh, it's mostly remembered today um, because of Silverchair. Right. It kind of, I feel like that was the only year they did that competition, even though it obviously had a massive uh, success for them. Yeah. No, that's right. It, it, I mean, it was it was very late at night and um, on on SBS. So I don't know how many people were watching. I mean, it was probably a decent yeah. amount, but it wasn't like you know being on ABC or or, or any of those yeah. other networks. Um, so so yeah, what happened? I mean, I could I could draw this story out. I could tell a very <laughs> long version, but but the shorter version of it is that these they got a lot of entries more than they expected and each person working on the nomad thing was took took a bunch like let's say a hundred each and and listened and listened and listened during a week and came up with their favorites and then they went back and had a meeting and presented their favorites you know uh like for, you know, number one, number two, number three kind of thing. And the, the, there was this kind of, from what I understand, a bit of a disagreement about who should win. And it was between um, Innocent Criminals, which is, you know, the band that be, that, that was Silverchair before Silverchair, um, and, uh, and an artist, I think, think they were from melbourne and it was like a solo artist i think it was a girl and i think it was pretty much all programmed so it wasn't really a band it was more pop right and the song was catchy and the singer um i think you know had had a a charm and all that um but you know in robert's uh, opinion and 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 with his taste and bear in mind that Rob Robert Hambling um, had worked in England in a recording studio. He actually worked for the Rolling Stone uh, mobile truck, so they went out recording right. lots and lots of bands. So he was a huge, huge music fan. I mean, you know, you could talk. You, well, he's still one of my closest friends, and you know talking with him about music is just he's like an encyclopedia he's really knowledgeable and has very very good opinion and great taste in music um and and, and had become a filmmaker for he he did some uh documentaries for channel 4 in england before he moved to australia and then when he was in Australia, he started doing things like this thing, you know, like the nomad thing. So yeah. basically he called me and said, Hey, you know, what are you up to? Can I, can I play you something? And I said, sure. And he came up to my house and played me a couple of these tracks. I think there were four songs on the demo by, by um, innocent criminals. And it, I was just blown away by it. It was just like the, the, the guy's voice was, just great you know really could sing and a great husky kind of voice quite low all that stuff um they did sound a little bit you know like nirvana and pearl jam um which was exactly what was going on at the time i mean and it wasn't like you know like nirvana had had just got got big you know and it wasn't like years later this this was very current and um even the record companies 
in, in Australia, and I would say even the record companies in the world hadn't really caught up to grunge yet. It was very much the kids liked it, and it was becoming right, a yeah. thing. That's how I remember it, at least. I think Nirvana had been around for a while, but you know, and had made a couple of records, and, and then they got big with obviously Nevermind. So this was after Nevermind came out. Um, so he played it to me, and I, I, I just this is this is great, you know. And then he explained to me about the competition and that they were not going to win because there was another song uh, by 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 this other artist that was somehow more popular because it was a real pop song. And I was just like, you know, what's that like? And he, I think he, yeah, he played it to me because I, I can vaguely remember what it was like. And it was just not, I mean, it was nothing special. It, it was a great song. The, 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 the singing wasn't bad and all that, but it just wasn't extraordinary. Whereas um, it, the Innocent Criminals thing was absolutely extraordinary because it was so catchy that's that you know and it was so well played and it had life and it sounded current it sounded like what what kids are listening to right now kind of thing so i was like well you know i i I think they should win and he said well i'm thinking of um you know the song that they've all heard at nomad is this this one song it wasn't tomorrow it was a different song and um, and he said, I, I'm thinking that maybe I'll I'll play them a different song tomorrow, um, <laughs> tomorrow. Uh, and um, <laughs> basically, we listened, and, and the song tomorrow, I'm going to get very confusing here, um, it was just stood out as the catchiest song. However, it was like seven minutes long. Yeah. really really long and it didn't get to the core and the chorus wasn't really the chorus and it was and and so i just said well look i think that's that's the single that's the catchy song the other ones are kind of really good rock songs but that's that's the killer kind of catchy song it needs to be rearranged into a, a shorter version and, and and it needs to get to the chorus quicker and blah blah, blah. so i wrote out the arrangement that it was that they, they'd done the demo in and then I wrote out what it should be and gave it to him and he went home and he was like oh, I'll get someone to edit it or he would have a go and it just proved to be very difficult so then he called me back again and I said Look, I'll, I'll, I'll do it and I had a revox at home uh, you know a reel to reel analog tape machine yeah so I just basically edited their demo put it back on a CD and gave it to him. He then went into the Nomad office or SBS office, I imagine, and played it. And then everybody agreed that they should win. And I also said to to Robert, look, I, I really love, love this band. Um, I'll gladly record them, you know, as, as part of the prize. So I became part of the prize. And so, yeah, so then they, they, they won. Um, and, and, you know, Robert did the video. Um, but at this point, you know, no one else had really heard it. And the, um, then they, then, then I think the prize 
well, oh yeah, then it was like, okay, we need to go in and record the song properly. And they made tri- Triple J offered their studio for free. And, That's right. Right. And and they were going. They they said that they would play the winner like just once, you know, on, on yeah. the radio station. <laughs> so, um, so it was all getting like you know this took this took a couple of weeks from 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 the moment of um of of deciding they're going to win to them winning, and and it and then the recording took took about three weeks. The other thing I should mention, which which I think is, uh hilarious in a way is that when robert called the phone number on the cd to tell them that they'd won uh daniel's mum julie uh answered the phone and the conversation went something like like robert's going like hi um i'm i'm calling from uh SBS. I'm, I'm, I'm after uh, Daniel Johns. Is he? Is he around? Could I speak to Daniel Johns? Because it had his name on the CD. And the woman said, "said um, um, No, he's not. He, he's not here at the moment. He's at school." So, so Robert said, "He's at school. Oh, is he a teacher?" And, <laughs> because at that point, no one, nobody knew how old they were. There was no picture. Yeah. Right. No one had an idea, and his voice is low, and he certainly doesn't sound that young. Um, so Julie said, "No, he's at school." And, and Robert's like, "Well, is he? Oh, is he a teacher?" He said, "No, no, he's my son." And he goes, "Oh, <laughs> oh, okay. Um, well, when will he be back from school?" And she said, "What's this about?" He said, "He said, well, I, I, it's someone." your son sent in a CD of demos uh, under the name of innocent criminals. And uh, I'm part of the program and uh, basically um, they, they've won. And she said, Oh my God. She said, I sent that in, you know, my, wow. my kids didn't send it in. And she said, well, how old is Daniel? She said, well, he's, he's just turned 14. And so <laughs> Robert was like, hang on, hang on, hang on. Are we talking about the same? This the band is called Innocent Criminals. She said, "Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's the name of the band, and there's three of them in the band, and and they're all fourteen years old." And, and Robert was like, "I can't believe that." So he was so amazed by this. He said, "Can I? Where where are you? Can I drive up and meet them?" So basically, he drove up there the next day to meet them. And he, he called me before he went and he said, you never believe this. That that band that I played you, they're 14-year-olds. It's like, fuck, that's insane. How can they sound like that at 14? I mean, just the playing was so good. And um, and his singing in particular was, you know, extraordinary. And um, so anyway, he went up there, met them. Uh, obviously, they were hilarious. They're very funny. I mean, they're just... I mean, when I met them, which was later, I, I found them to be absolutely hilarious. They're just very funny kids, <laughs> yeah. um, especially Ben. You know, he's a real, real uh, sort of prankster and uh, comedian type. Um, and, you know, uh, so that, that, that's it. That's what happened, and that's why they won. And then, of course, 
unfortunately for me, and bear in mind, this was just a little thing, a favor that I was going to do. Um, the I came down with a really horrific flu, and I couldn't. I just couldn't talk, and I couldn't do anything. So, and and I was due to fly to Chicago to work with a band uh, on on like the Monday, and the recording of tomorrow was done on the weekend. So it ended up being this crazy thing where I was uh, on on the phone. I, can ne- I didn't meet them back then. I was on the phone yeah. to um, uh, Phil McKellar, right? Is that right? Or was it Paul yeah. Kircher? Yeah, was he it Phil McKellar and Paul McKircher. It was Phil. Because <laughs> they both worked for Triple J. Yeah. So I ended up on the phone to him. Uh, just saying my ideas, you know, I said, obviously the guitars need to be sound much bigger. This needs to happen and he should do a solo and the solo should be this. And, you know, and, and I said, look, I've, I rearranged the song. Uh, I rearranged the demo. Maybe the band could listen to that and do that. And that's pr- pretty much what they did. They, they did the arrangement that I came up with. Um, but I never met them. I didn't record the original version of tomorrow i got on a plane on monday feeling a little better i wasn't totally recovered and went uh, to chicago for two months right and <laughs> two months later i'm flying back on Qantas, uh, exhausted after doing this album with this crazy band from chicago and i'm on the plane and i'm listening to um you know the the, the Qantas, um, you know, the, the playlist that they they have. Back yeah, the, the in-house, yeah. the yeah. in-plane radio. Yeah. And so I'm listening to that, uh, you know, and there's various songs, and on comes that, that guitar riff, you know, the beginning of tomorrow. Yes. And I'm like, God, I know this. I thought, it must be a record I made. What What, what is this? And then the <laughs> voice came in, and I was like, what? I know this. I know this so well. Yet I can't pick it. And the drums came in, and they it wasn't quite the drum sound that I get because I, you know, I tend to get a a, a a kind of recognizable drum sound. And I thought, what is this? So I went and looked in the, uh, you know, they have a, a, a sort of brochure in the book. Yeah, in, in the ma- I'm looking, and it says Silverchair, right? And I'm like. Who's Silverchair? I've never heard of Silverchair because when I left Australia two months earlier, they were called Innocent Criminals. And I get, I get, uh, I land, I get picked up by my family and my kids are there. My kids at that point were, I'm going to say probably 10 and eight, around that age. Yeah. I have two kids, Lee, Lee and Lana, and um, Lee is older by two years. And um, and so I, I in the car, I said, on the plane I heard this band, and they're called Silverchair. Does anybody know anything about this band? And uh, both my kids were like, oh, yeah, they're great. You know, they're this, they're this band. They're really young, and they're on Triple J, and their song's number one. And, you know, they told me the whole thing. And I yeah. couldn't 
believe it. I was a common. So you you connected the dots there. Yeah, or? yeah. That's when I realized, yeah, like, yeah. oh, that's what it is. When as soon as they said Triple J, I thought that's what's happened. They've actually yeah. put that record out, and it's a massive hit. So yeah, I, it it was a combination. My feelings at that moment were a combination of absolute joy and happiness. That yeah. wow those kids they made it you know and it's number one apparently and it'd been number one for a what for, for like a few weeks at that point and yeah but also i was really bummed because i thought well obviously uh, you know i i nearly did that recording and if yeah. i hadn't had the flu like this really bad flu i would have been in the studio doing that that version so um and and that that was so when of course as soon as i got back home i rang robert up and said what happened and they said oh this happened it all happened so quickly you know it's just one of those kind of crazy sort of um you know phenomenon there's like a phenomenon that 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 the song got played people loved it people saw the videos saw how young they were and, and, and it's just it all took off you know so yeah it is amazing it is absolutely amazing and 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 so i I still hadn't met them right so uh, my my thought was oh well you know i missed out on that first song even though i i I did the arrangement and all that i thought well i'll get i at least i can probably call um call up and try and um trying you know work with them maybe on the second single they were already in the studio doing their album <laughs> with, with kevin with kevin, with Sterling, kevin yeah. yeah who who's a friend of mine you know uh and i was like wow this is i mean i was so bummed by the whole thing because you know the band i went to work with in chicago was quite problematic in that their record company wasn't very supportive of them so yeah that, you know, and, and this sort of, I mean, that's kind of how it is sometimes. Sometimes these things that you don't, ex, don't expect to particularly take off do take off in a huge way. It's like the, the momentum is extraordinary. And other things sometimes that you work on very hard don't, don't happen, you know. It's part of, it is part of the, the thing. But um, the only other thing I have to add to this little story is, between the time where uh, you know I edited the demo and th- they got told that they were going to win, and it actually becoming a video, and then then the Triple J offer of the studio. So that was a period of let's say two weeks, maybe three weeks actually. Um, yeah. I went round to all the big record companies in Sydney, you know, including Sony, um, BMG or Polygram, whatever they were, Warners, and played the song Tomorrow in demo form to the A&R people high up. And they the, and, and said, I want to work with this band. Will you sign them? And they all rejected it. Yeah. Which is... Because I believe, yeah, you know, because um, I don't, I don't think, I don't think the two Johns from Sony, uh, that like they had to see them live to get the right 
to make it click for them. Yeah, maybe I would think that John uh, John O'Donnell already had that, you know, the the, the really cool label Murmur. Um, yeah, and I think you see that that which was separate to Sony. So I didn't know John O'Donnell then. Uh, he was a new person on on in the record company scene. I saw. I can't remember who I played it to. I played it to someone else at Sony, um, you know, probably actually higher up than John O'Donnell. Um, And John Watson was working at the record company, but I didn't know him either. So, you know, obviously I became very close friends with both the Johns and still am. I still see them every time I go to Sydney and and all that. Um, I mean, it was just a, a fantastic thing because everything fell into place in the right way i mean you know and that they had the right people around them yeah, as well it, it sounds like quite, <laughs> quite magical because honestly john watson one of the best managers i've ever come across that i've ever seen ever i mean yeah. i really i mean he he, he quit the a and yeah. job to become the manager because he was so passionate about them yeah exactly and 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 john o'donnell you know great taste in music and he he, he started that great label murmur and signed you know the living end and uh automatic yep. and there's so many cool bands you know uh something for kate i mean it, it's great probably one of the best australian labels of all time so yeah. uh you know it it is it is pretty you know you kind of wonder about the universe and how it works and and he, especially when you know obviously years and years go by and just watching Daniel and getting to know Daniel as I did as I do uh you know you know people like Daniel need great people around them because there's there's he's such a special uh person you know he's 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 um so fu- so beyond his years in in mm. musical knowledge and and his talent is just you know i mean I, I i've worked with some incredible people i've been very 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 lucky but he is someone that i would put um up there with kate bush for instance who who also started very yeah kate bush wrote wuthering heights when she was 12 you know and and is an absolute I know. absolute genius and quite eccentric in a way and and daniel is the same you know he's very he's quite he's you know he he, he, he you know conversationally he's quite normal and you know it's it's um all that, but when you when you work with him and you get deep into his mind, it's it's just this extraordinary. Um, I don't even know, can't find the words, but it's it's uh, it goes deep, you know, it goes really, really, really deep. Yeah, and he has all these sort of ideas that he thinks aren't possible to do, and he sometimes won't tell you about those ideas because he can't work out how to explain them. But if you push and push and ask questions, which is kind of what I did, especially, you know, um, when we came to doing um, uh, Neon Ballroom. Um, Well, Neon Ballroom was the, was, you know, um, Freak Show was the first one I did with them. Which is their second record, and and it, um, you know, 
that's where where I kind of got to know them and work with them, and it all happened very quickly. It was a very we recorded the album extremely quickly, and it, it's a rock record, you know, and it has got some some more elaborate songs on it, which was probably me pushing them, but um, but Neon Ballroom uh, was the album where I really got to experiment and and push all his ideas and get everything out. Um, yeah and I think you were probably very instrumental in exposing him to other music that he didn't know about that got him thinking in terms of what could I do next yeah I think so well there was the whole um, you know doing Freak Show let's say was quite a natural process in that uh, by that point of course they'd become a very big band very quickly and the the songs were they'd played some of the songs live they had demos and it was a i'm going to say a relatively normal process uh that that that, that yeah. is is a process that that happens a lot with bands and making albums in that you know the band the bands write the songs they rehearse them they demo them the producer gets chosen the producer you know goes into rehearsal and helps rearrange and then you go in the studio and record them so that that's kind of what happened with with freak show i mean we did add um some strings and you know indian instruments and all that um which was great fun but but the the whole thing after freak show is when everything went a bit bizarre for for dang yeah you know he, he started not eating he became a recluse, um, even though he bought a, an incredible house, which he still owns in, in Newcastle that overlooks the ocean. Um, he wasn't living at his house. He was still, I mean, what are we talking, 16 by this point? It's crazy. 16 or 17. He was. Yeah, maybe 17 at the start. Yeah, yeah, yeah probably 17. And he was living at home. Um, back back at his mum and dad's place in his original bedroom, and he wasn't coming out. I mean, according to his mum, uh, at that time he he wasn't even leaving his room. And there were fans out on the street, uh, just like you know, there were sleeping bags and stuff. And it was just a crazy oh, situation. God. He just didn't want to go out uh, at all. He was you know, just probably confused and scared about, about the world. And, you know, he'd also been accused, um, of, 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 you know, of, of causing two kids in America of killing their parents. Yeah. Right. I mean, imagine that, imagine being 17 years old and that happening. And then there was some crazy woman who was claiming that, that he'd, um, you know, he had an affair with her. I'm using affair as a nice word, um, but but basically yeah. she took him to court over it and it was just ridiculous. He wasn't even in the same country as her, you know, at the time. And, it, you know, crazy stuff like that was going on. Um, and he'd, I don't know if he, I don't know whether I'd say he fell out with Ben and Chris. I don't think that happened, but he, he he they became more 
like surf, like like probably like normal people, like they were yeah. surfing and they were surfing and they had cool cars and they were driving these cars, these cool cars around and they maybe had a Jeep and, you know, it's all that, just all that stuff that you could imagine 17-year-olds with quite a bit of money would do. Whereas Daniel wasn't dealing with it so hard and, and became a recluse and I don't think he had a car or anything like that. Um, and he, he stopped eating. Um, yeah. and he was not very well. Um, you know, and that got worse and worse and worse actually. But, um, so. And that was the bit, that was the big media story, uh, you know, in the, around that album. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's, it's kind of like he was going through all this stuff and he'd already had that bad experience with the lyrics of Israel son. Yeah you know, being, being used, you know, you know, as a, as a reason to murder someone. And, and then he's, he's written all these songs that have all this personal stuff in it. It's, it, it was, it took some bravery on his part to, to even, you know, have that album come out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well, that album nearly didn't exist. In fact, Silverchair nearly didn't exist from, from, from after Freak Show. What happened is John, Watson called me up and explained the situation and the recluseness of of Daniel. And um, basically he had this idea that I should drive up there. Would I drive up there just to see him and say hello and see, because he has songs. And and basically Julie told um, John that she heard quite a few songs coming out of his bedroom. Um, so there were songs, but he didn't want to play them to anyone. So it was kind of my my mission to go up there and 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 hear these songs somehow. Yeah. And so I did that. I drove up there. I used to have this um, very old Mercedes that was an orange color uh, that um, – was quite a favorite with the band. We used to go for drives in it and it was called the pumpkin car. And, <laughs> and, um, we actually, when I first met going, going back to before doing freaks, I, I, I drove up there to meet them and to talk about the album. And we went in for a drive in it and th- they were very excited about showing me around Newcastle and one of them said, oh, oh, we should go egging. And I'd never heard of egging. It's, I guess it's not really a big thing in England. You know, I'd never heard of egging. So they said, they said, oh, Nick, do you want to go egging? And I was like, all right. So we actually uh, stopped off at, I think it was a gas station, and they bought 12 eggs. And we just drove around Newcastle throwing eggs <laughs> at people eating outside in restaurants. I mean, it was ridiculous. And then there was another thing where Ben, you know, we went to this place. I can't remember what it's called, but it's a like a beach. It's a it's a parking lot overlooking a parking sort of area overlooking the beach in Newcastle. And at night, you know, lovers would go there in their cars and. You know, make out kind of thing, and so 
we just drove around there and he stuck his ass, his naked ass out out of the back window like mooning them yeah you know so this was my my introduction to them you know <laughs> of like this is what it's going to be like making a record with them um so that was pretty hilarious but anyway g- g- getting back to after freak show and before uh, uh, Neon Ballroom. Neon. Yeah, I, I went up there and basically ended up hanging out with him and he did play me some songs. And the more songs he played and the more I talked with him about music and the more open he became about them. And um, it was just this, you know, it was a great thing. And then, then we actually... I got him out of the out of the house and we went for a drive and I played him. He he hadn't really heard of Kate Bush. In fact, when I played him a yeah. Kate Bush song, he said, "Oh, uh, he said, oh, that sounds a bit like Tori Amos." And I and I yeah. I think I stopped the car and I said, "Daniel, that you can never say that. That's blasphemy." <laughs> I said, basically, Tori Amos completely copied Kate Bush, her sound, her way of singing, everything. Kate Bush was like 15, 20 years before Tori Amos. Um, But then anyway, continued. And I played him uh, quite a lot of Kate Bush songs, which he absolutely loved. And then I thought, wow, you know, maybe he hasn't listened. I wonder if he's listened to Pink Floyd and he knew about Pink Floyd, but he described Pink Floyd as like his dad's, one of his dad's bands, a band that his dad would listen to. So he wasn't that interested. So I played him, you know, dark side of the moon and wish you were here. And it, that was just like, it suddenly became, Oh, that's the kind of record we could make with these songs that he'd written. You see, and then it then the discussion went towards okay well what what is this is this a a Daniel John's solo record I mean he's seventeen he's only done two albums with Silverchair is that the end of Silverchair of course nobody wanted that and I think Daniel was really scared about doing a solo record there's a lot of weight you know um, yeah so so yeah I I mean. Again, to, to cut a long story short, I, I I then I think I called Chris first because Chris is like the was the glue between Ben and and Daniel because uh, they're both very strong. Yeah, I can very, I can see that. Yeah, they're both very strong, very different characters, and obviously the best best friends. But sometimes even best friends drift apart for various reasons, and I think maybe they had gone in different directions because Daniel wanted to do something completely different musically. And Ben wanted to do more sort of Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath type stuff. So, yeah, you know, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, that's just my take on it. Um, that might not be what happened or anything, but, um, but I spoke to Chris and Chris just said, Oh, you know, you should get, just get them in the, get them in a room together. And it, they'll it'll all be okay you know so that that's I, I went and saw ben spoke to ben told him that there were some great songs but they were not typical of uh silver chair they were 
much more elaborate and had many more parts and they were complicated. And, and I, I, you know, and I told him, I said, look, the Daniel's biggest worry is that you're not going to like them. And he goes, Oh, why wouldn't I like them? I like everything, you know, kind of thing. And, and I said, I'm sure you'll like them, but he thinks you won't like them. And that's why he doesn't want to play them to you. And, um, I said, but you know, he's, he's much more open than he was two days ago. And then, and then anyway, they, we all got together, um, it, at, um, Ben's house in his, in his bedroom. And, and it was just, oh God, it was one of the most moving moments I've ever experienced. It was just like, cause Ben, they hadn't seen each other, even though they lived, yeah. uh, you know, a, a block away, so to speak, but from each other in Newcastle, they hadn't seen each other. And it was very, and they're young, you know, so they don't know how to deal with emotions and all that stuff, you know, and it's, but anyway, it, it was incredible. I mean, they're, they're all, there's lots of tears and hugs and, you know, and Ben, Ben was like, saying to Daniel, I love you, man. I love you. You know, going like, uh, you know, yeah. like play us the fucking songs. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then of course the songs were played and they're incredible. And everybody's like, Oh my God. And, 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 uh, you know, very quickly after that, we went into rehearsal to do the record and, um, and it was great. You know, it was, it was, it was, it was very, everything happened very naturally after that. Um, but you know, so, so did you, do do you like, did you, you would have obviously noticed like the, the progression from freak show to neon ballroom in the songwriting. Oh yeah. absolutely. So I, did that sort of pose a a challenge or, or like an excitement for you to like, uh, really dig dig in and produce it? Yeah. Well, it wasn't, I mean, I love a challenge and I, I, you know, by this point I'd already made a lot of records and I'd made obviously some pretty complicated ones like, you know, Midnight Oil's 1098. It was a pretty, I mean, Midnight Oil, you know, they, they play very complicated rock music. Uh, And, 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 you know, this was kind of, in a similarly complicated, I wouldn't say it was more complicated, you know, they, Right. It's just the use of unusual chords and and, yeah. and and knowing, okay, you've got to get the the foundation of the song has to be basically rock. You know, it's a, a drummer, a bass player, and a guitar player, and it has to it has to groove, it has to rock. And then, then it's a case of all the other things that go on top. And it's it's the other things that went on top that, that took a little bit more um organizing you know and, yeah and, so cuz you were still uh, you were recording them sort of live absolutely. Uh, as a three piece for absolutely well i i i always record all bands i've ever made a record with i record live it's it's the way i do it and it's the way it's i i guess some people would call it old school but it's it's the way it's the only way you could make records in the 60s and 70s i started making records in 1979 before digital so the only way you could make a record um, was by the band knowing how to play and miking them up properly. Yeah. And they're all playing at once in, in, in a room, you know? So that's what I grew up learning. And so this was that, you know, and it obviously it suits um, bands like 
um, like Silverchair very well because they're an extraordinary band and they they lock in and there's a chemistry between the three of them that is, yeah, you know, it's the same as the chemistry between the guys in ACDC or, you know, or, or, or Midnight Oil or, you know, or, or, you know. Or, yeah, I think or, people underrate that aspect of it. Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of people don't understand that aspect because you can make yeah. a record by recording the drums first to a drum machine and then overdubbing and the end result can be good. But I would argue that it will never be as good as a really good band all playing together in a room. Um, I mean, you know, this stuff isn't done to a click even, you know, it speeds up and goes down in all the right places for all the right reasons. And that's what rock and roll is. Rock and roll is not done to a drum machine. It's not done to a click. I mean, you know, I mean, I, w- I work a lot with um, with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, and you know, there's not one song ever been done to a click. I mean, there's, there's yeah. a couple of songs that are drum machine, and very, but like probably count them on one hand. But it's, um, you know, it's just not the way I make records, and I, I I don't think it's a wise way to make a record with a with a great band if the band can really play. It, it, I feel like it's almost your duty as a record producer and recording engineer to capture their energy, the energy that they have live. That's what it's all about. And if you don't capture that, you're missing a lot of great stuff. So, so yeah, I mean, both, um, both Freak Show and um, Neon Ballroom were, were done at Festival Studios in Sydney which is a great, uh, great sounding room. It's a very big sort of old fashioned sixties. It was built in the sixties. So got sort of linoleum on the floor and got a very naturally good echo to it. It's a very big room. And then there are other booths of it. So yeah, we just, um, did that. I suppose one of the most memorable moments of that of of neon ballroom was that we basically got great songs and had finished the record and we were you know pulling down the studio in other words packing things up putting the mics away yeah. and were um due to go to come come over to LA to mix the record um and John Watson uh was i don't know i guess he had an inkling that there was another song Uh, and he sat daniel down and he said listen daniel before we pack everything up are you sure we haven't (laughs) got because this had been going on for a while you know yeah don't you have do you have any more songs because daniel basically ended up presenting the songs that we recorded and that was it Right, he didn't ever play anybody any yeah. others, and we all thought that's all he's got, and it was fine because it was an, an album's worth. Um, but yeah, Watson, I remember we went out to the studio. Was sitting, I think Daniel was maybe sitting on the floor, uh, as he often did, and and yeah, Watson said, "Yeah, are you sure you don't have another song?" And he goes, uh, you know, Daniel's being cheeky about it. What, do you reckon we need another song? And he's like, well, you know what I mean, Daniel. Do you, like, do you have 
you know, like it's a great record. We've we've got we've got a couple of songs that that, that can be singles. But do you have that you know that killer single? And he goes, ah, oh, you know, he said, uh, oh, is that what you're after? <laughs> like rolling his eyes, and I'm look, looking on, very amused at this. Um, and he goes, um, "Oh, why didn't you say?" You know, that, that's what you get. <laughs> and he gets up, gets on the piano, and starts playing. You know, um, yeah. Oh, it might have been a guitar. It might have been a guitar actually. He might have grabbed a guitar and play. And he played Anna's song, and it was just like. Fucking hell, you know, like <laughs> probably one of the best songs I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Not only melodically, but the lyrics. And of course, the lyrics yeah. were all about uh, anorexia. But just, you know, when you think about this, a 17 year old wrote those lyrics. And if you read those lyrics and bear in mind what he'd been going through with not eating and having anorexia, comes up with a song where it's a love affair with you know you feel like the song is a girl called anna and he loves anna yeah and that's why he can't get rid of anna he's addicted to, to to anna his love is an addiction with anna but anna is anorexia i mean just that is mind-blowing it's just such a beautiful romantic and extraordinary um way of dis of of explaining his situation you know um and then you know then later on the song there's that great bit at the middle section where he yeah. anorex your life anorex your life anorex your life and it sounds like anorexia and you know, yeah it's 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 genius it's absolute genius so he played that song and um it was literally hey ben don't pack your drum kit up just yeah, yeah, and the assistant. I said, put put the mics back up. So we put it all up, you know, and plugged everything in again, and pushed record. And I tell you, probably got that that song within three takes. Probably maybe yeah. we did more, but it was like it came together so quickly. That song was was done by the end of the day in absolute yeah. completion of you know, backing vocals of the whole thing. It was. Just yeah. imagine if you'd never, if John hadn't pushed him oh, and, no. and you'd already packed up and you had a, a you know, a different temperament and he, you didn't want to have to set everything back up again. Absolutely. We would have lost yeah. the song. Maybe yeah, I, I don't think we would have ever heard it because I think he would have, he would have kept it to himself because it was so personal. And, and, yeah. you know, the discussion did then, uh, continue to you know with what with what i mean this is one of the reason i i i i say that that john watson or as we know him watto is in my opinion one of the best managers i've ever seen is because of moments like that because he not only yeah. can can organize things really well which is a big part of ma- managing but he also had this incredible empathy for um for daniel and all this stuff and just like um you know just uh be, being able to, just to know that he might have yeah something. that he might have something and, and then being able to say the right things to make sure daniel was comfortable doing the song because obviously yeah. it's 
you know, n- n- the whole world didn't know. Well, the whole of Australia didn't know about the anorexia. There was hints of it, I think, because some photos mm-hmm. came out or something like that. And it's like, well, what do you do with that? Do you do you hide it and continue to hide it, which of course you can, or do you just do the opposite, which is tell, make it a story, uh, tell the story. And what better yeah. way of telling the story than in a song? I mean, it's it's just fantastic, and it really helped. I really believe it helped yeah. everything because Daniel really didn't have to really do much interviewing about it. He could just people could hear the song, and of course, that song was the biggest hit of that album. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it was. I mean, I was fifteen when that album came out, right. and that was like a big moment for right. me. Right? Yeah, yeah. Because he did, he he did one big interview in Rolling Stone over here where he, he did talk about all that stuff. Right. And apparently that th- that writer didn't even know that he was going to talk about that. Right. And he just sort of decided, I've written this song. Right. People are going to hear it. I'm going to tell pretty much one journalist yep. about this. That's right. And the, the story will, and, and apparently it, you know, it helped a lot of people who were going through the same thing. Right. He, he knew his audience would yeah. probably Yeah, and you know what's it. very interesting is, you know, I, obviously I live out here, I've been living out here in, in LA, in America for a while, and I have a lot of friends, a lot of my friends, I have friends of all ages, but I have a lot of young friends, uh, well, they'd be your age, uh, who, who were yeah. teenagers at that time. And, uh, uh, you know, LA in particular has a lot of big problems with uh, anorexia. I mean, because because it's, you know, where films are made and there's lots of TV shows and modeling. And, you know, if if you look good, uh, you you might have a career if you you are in LA because people spot you and then the next thing you know, you're on a TV show. So so that is definitely something that's in the air here. So, you know, a lot of uh, teenagers would deliberately not eat to make themselves thinner for, for all the wrong reasons, yeah. you know. And I, I have I have met so many people in probably in their, I guess, 30s who said, oh, you know, I just realized you worked with Silverchair. Um, they were my favorite yeah. band when I was a teenager. And that song Anna, it it, it 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 it's it changed everything for me because I realised there are other people out there with with anorexia, and it's 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 yeah, absolutely a, a phenomenally important song because it's it's so beautiful, it's so beautifully yeah. worded. Um, yeah. So you you won an aria for that album, um, Engineer of the Year, which I think also uh, included some of the other bands you'd worked with that that year, right. like Primary. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Do, do you? So can you tell me anything about the engineering and the? I know the mixing was done overseas because of an analog. Did you mix it on a Neve or something like that? I'm trying to think. So I didn't I didn't mix Freak Show. Freak Show was mixed by Andy Wallace. Um, that's right. right. Who, who at the time was the most popular kind of grunge, yeah. uh, mix guy and a lovely, lovely guy. I mean, love the guy really, really, a real sweet, sweet man, quite a lot older. I mean, I'm, I'm older, but he was old. He was like old enough to be my dad. So, uh, yeah, so it was quite, I mean, I think we took a photo at, at one point of, of, of them, me and 
Andy, and it really did look like kids, dad, and <laughs> grandpop. And granddad. Yeah. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, th- that was a great experience. We all went to New York um, for the mixing of that, uh, the freak show. So come um, Neon Ballroom, uh, yeah, I we, we came over to LA. Uh, the main reason for that was that the the the, the stu- you know the studios were just a little bit better equipped at that point. I mean, yeah, something I've noticed with Australia, Australia goes in and out of having great studios, and and then they shut, and then another one opens, and yeah, and there aren't that yeah. many of them. So anyway, we came to LA, and I think that was partly to do with perhaps wanting the record company to be involved. Um, you know, or yeah, feel okay. involved. Let's use that terminology. Like, <laughs> make yeah. make the record company feel involved, feel involved. so that they that then promote the record better. So we did it in LA, and it was at a studio called Larrabee, which I'd worked at and liked. And um, I mixed. Basically, I mixed the whole record. Um, and then. It was one of those things that happens, right, where the label – so making the label feel like they're involved, that trick worked. But it, for me, it worked in to, to a, a negative way in that the head of A&R, who was actually an English guy and he was in New York, and I don't remember his name. I've probably deliberately erased him from my memory. <laughs> just decided – Oh, you know, the mixes are no good. Um, I want to get, we need to get it mixed uh, by someone who mixes hits. And I wasn't known for mixing hits. You know, I I was more known for making albums and mixing albums. I mean, I'd had plenty of hits, you know, but this guy was like number one hits in America kind of vibe. So I think the discussion went around a couple of names and then the band and Watson decided that better to keep it close uh, in the family. Ah, you see, I've always wanted to know yeah. what, what happened. And here. so, I mean, I, I, you know, probably best person to ask would be John Watson about the actual reasons for this. But that's that's kind of the what I felt had happened, and I was really upset about it and really pissed off because I I did. I thought very good mixes of those songs and I did them the way I felt they needed to be. And, um, mm. you know, so Kevin mixed, I think it was two or three songs. It was Well, he did two. This is the weird thing. I think your mix still exists on, on the Australian. So on the, uh, so on the U S version has the miss you love Kevin's yep. mix, but the Australian version has your mix yep. of it and Kevin's, Anthem for the year 2000 is on the Australian mix. Right. So I was doing research for that, this at the, like I, just recently I the, and I couldn't work out. Yeah. I think the original, the original Australian release of the whole album is all my mixes. Mm. Whether they change that f- at some point, I don't know, but yeah, it was like, yeah, those two songs and the thing about it is this, right? Like Kevin, so Kevin is a really good friend of mine. 
Uh, I really admire his work. I think he's he's great, but he is he he is very all about the simplicity of rock. You know, yes. like you know, he's if you listen to his mix, his yeah, his mix of the Led Zeppelin concert. There's a there's a DVD of Led Zeppelin live that he mixed. Yeah, and it is unbelievable how good it sounds you feel like you're in the room with led yeah. zeppelin and it's great he, he's great at that and if you look at all the like the, his recording mixing producing of uh frog stomp is fantastic it's a very yeah. simple album it's three guys in a room playing great and yeah. it's captured perfectly and it's mixed with a lot of excitement and that's what kevin's great at and what I'm more, um, I'm more experimental. And to me, yeah. um, I like to experiment and I like to push boundaries and I'm, I'm not just satisfied with it sounding like, you know, drums, bass and guitar and a vocal. I, I want more. And to me, what upset me was that this album was their third album and it was the album to, to experiment and to go a little bit out there. And yeah. when I heard the mix of uh, year 2000, although it sounds uh, crisp and loud and bombastic and all those things that it absolutely should, it also had a lot of – the guitar riff is different. Like he didn't – I did some edits on the guitar riff to make it – right. it, it, it basically goes – Oh wow! It basically, the riff is and it's the way it was played was more. You know, it's like so that was left in, yeah. And I was bummed by that because I that was just almost a production idea that there's like, oh, it's supposed to be the other way, and that that didn't happen. And a lot of the strange backwards pianos and all the crazy noises were mixed down. It was a much simpler mix, which, you know, I just don't think it made any difference to making it more a hit or not. But anyway, American record company guy was happy. I don't think he honestly has one ounce of music in him, that guy. I can't remember his name. (laughs) I really hated him. Like, I really hated him. And he... I'm sorry to bring oh, no, it up. No, no, like, <laughs> like he's he was just one of those guys that was the epitome of of accountants that got a job at a record company that yeah. then started um, making decisions about art, you know. And it's just like, what was his name? Anyway, he was very hated. I I can say by many many record producers. Yeah. Um, and um, but that that's that's it. I mean, and of course, you know, a year later or so, I. I had no problem with any of it, and and I actually I actually really like Kevin's mix now. I listen yeah, to it and I go, well, yeah. it's it's just a different take of the same song, and it's actually not even yeah. different. It's at the time it sounded so different to me. It sounded like yeah, it sounded like um you know all the magic had been taken out, but um but yeah, you know the yeah. there's plenty of magic uh, yeah. on the rest of the album. That's right. That much. That's right. So by the time you got to work with work on Young Modern, yes. So they'd had they'd had an album in between. Uh, how was it working with a band that were, you know, a lot older? And then by this point, Daniel was co-producing. How was that experience? Um, 
it was very different it was very different um yeah the whole the whole thing was different daniel had become another a different person um drastically different uh but at the core uh, at the core of um of him was still the same daniel which i knew and uh i mean i can remember a few things so i remember i think by that point i was living in la yeah i was living in la flew back there there was this whole idea of of working on another silver chair record i heard some of the the demos and they were really good so i wanted to do it but daniel uh, as happens with people who get famous and wealthy he had a lot of hangers on yeah right. he had a few people around him that were just like what what are they doing what is their thing um and i'm not going to mention names but there was a someone who was very close to him who had worked with him um and it it, it was problematic because this guy wanted to produce the record and Daniel didn't want him to produce the record. And I think he'd already had a go at producing the record. And there's all that kind of drama that you just don't want. Yeah. It becomes really boring. So the, in, in the end, after, after rehearsing with them and, and of course, Paul Mack was involved, who was great. Love Paul, 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 um, Daniel's best friend and, and great, great, great keyboard player. And you know the keyboards are a big part of that record, so that that was that, that was great. Um, that worked, but we rehearsed in Australia, and things got more da- back down to earth, and it became a little bit more familiar. You know, the feeling of how we'd worked before came back, and it was all good. We flew over to LA, worked in this studio that called CD Underbelly, which is a great little studio that I, I made many 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 records at here in LA and the band lived in the house and uh, of course Daniel was there at that point married to Natalie um, and honestly it all went really well it, the recording of the record was really great really fun they played fantastically but towards the end of recording it's it took a really really bizarre turn in that i think the guy that was you know originally involved was there and started manipulating things um and it got out of control and it got so out of control um that daniel basically managed to convince everybody that he wanted to mix the record himself so so so, and and so i'd already mixed most of the record and my mixes exist somewhere and it got so i'm not going to say ugly uh because it didn't get ugly because i think things could never get ugly between me and daniel it just got to a point where he was on a path that he wanted to go and there was nothing I could do about it. And so I, I just like, okay, that's fine. Actually, you know, what's weird about this, <laughs> this is very bizarre. 
And, and, and I sometimes yeah. wonder about the universe and how it works. So let's just say it got, there was drama. I'm not, that's a much better word than ugly because it didn't actually get ugly at all between me and Daniel. Like there was no arguments, no disagreements. He just went quiet and didn't, yeah. didn't know how to communicate with me. And I did a couple of mixes where th that album uh, is so complicated. It has way too many instruments on it. It's like, right. It's like, um, God, there's that film, uh, Amadeus film. Uh, yeah. Too many notes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it had too many notes. And I was jokingly saying to him, look, Daniel, no one's going to get it. It's too complicated. People can't hear five melodies all at the same time. It needs to be about three melodies and you need to decide which is the main melody. And then you mix the other ones in the background. And that's what I mixed. I mixed a couple of songs like yeah. that. And he just wanted all these melodies back in and he wanted we, we had to edit it down to make it listenable. So, it, and it just became this bizarre thing where I'd do the mix with, and Daniel would be there and he'd be super happy. He'd go home. Next day he'd come in and I'd get a message from John Watson saying, Daniel's not happy with the mix, but he doesn't know how to tell you. So I then asked Daniel, <laughs> well, you know, what don't you like about the mix? And you go, Oh no, I love it. I love it. It's great. It was that, that, because that's how he is. Yeah. But anyway, this kept going and it, it just was taking a lot of time and it was hard work. And then, uh, you've probably heard of burning man, burning man festival. Over yeah, here. yeah. You know, it's this massive thing out in the desert. It's, it's very cosmic and trippy and plastic. Yeah. Um, but there's no, the phones don't work there, right? No, nothing works. So I had this yeah. conversation with John Watson before, you know, my son flew over from Australia and we went to Burning Man together. Actually, it might've been my daughter. I can't remember who. I went with one of my kids. I've, I've been with both of my kids. Yeah. So I said, okay, look, it sounds to me like we need to have a little break and Daniel needs to work out what he wants to do. And I said, I'm going to go to Burning Man with with my one of my kids um there's no phone phones don't work there but it, it's only like five days i'll be gone i go to burning man have a great time and then uh, again and then i'm driving out of burning man and the phone and the, and the phone comes alive and it's like, bing, 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 bing. It's crazy, like, how many messages. <laughs> all these messages from John Watson. And most of them, and, and they all more or less said the same thing, but it was basically, hey, Nick, hey, I, I know you said the phones don't work. I'm hoping the phones do work and you're getting some of these messages, but we've got a real problem on our hands. I don't know what to do about it. Then the next one was, hey, you know, things are moving along. They're, I'm not, I, it's, you know, Daniel's being very, uh, pedantic about what he wants to do, blah blah blah. So um, it, it 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 basically I got the gist of of what was going on that things hadn't got any better, and I rang Watson, um, and he said, "Well, look, you know, Daniel is absolutely insistent that he wants to do the album, mix the album his way." 
So bear in mind, at that po- up to that point, it's me producing as normal, right? It's not me and Daniel yeah. producing the record. Um, not not that it matters right. at all. I mean, it could it could you know it doesn't matter. You know, those kind of credits. If the bands wants wants the credit, then they they get it because that that's fine. Someone like Daniel, of course, who's so genius in his way. Uh, you know, deserves that kind of credit. So it's not not a case of that. But I'm, I'm, I guess I'm trying to explain that when we did this record, that wasn't the vibe. That wasn't the arrangement. No, it wasn't the arrangement. Originally, it wasn't yeah. the arrangement. So now, so I had that conversation with Watson, where basically he said, "Look, Daniel's calm down, but he really, really wants all those instruments back in, and he wants." to to be in, in control of the mixes and i said well look he's he's never not been in control of the mixes it's just that he he's too shy to say what he thinks and i said but i get it i get it i said i don't agree with putting all the instruments back because it's just going to be a mess um but okay if that's what it has to be then that's what it has to be um so i said look let me just drive home let me think about how we go about this. So then the other message I got on my phone was from a, a manager I'd never heard of, uh, never met before, saying, um, um, hi, Nick, uh, I got your number from blah, blah, blah. I'm managing this new band who love the records you make and wondering if you uh, would be interested in working with them. Um, they've, they've made their own, they've produced their own record and it's got out of control and they need someone to come in and uh, help put it together and mix it. And their name is Arcade Fire. So, uh-huh. right. So I get home and there's some rough mixes and I'm like, God, this is incredible music. So I had this choice between going back and working with Daniel in the state of mind that he was, which which was difficult, and finishing that record, um, or jumping off of that record and going and doing the Arcade Fire record. And I chose to do the Arcade Fire one because I just didn't want the friendship between me and Daniel to get like that. And I thought what will happen, which is inevitable anyway, is that someone else will be brought in to mix it and Daniel can have his, his uh, thing, you know, he he can do what he wants because that's what he wants. He wanted to do what he wanted to do and he didn't want to be told no. And part of my role in that record was to say, no, like there's too many ideas. You've got to simplify it. Um, so very amicably that's what happened and what's bizarre about it is that the arcade fire album was called neon bible Bible, yeah you know it's just like yeah it's so i love that album. yeah it's a great record so so um that's what happened that's what happened and you know it, it is a shame to me because i do think uh you know, um, young modern could, could have been a much better record. I do think it's a bit busy. And I do think also that Daniel's vocals are not as good as 
they could have been. I, I, um, but so I was going to ask about that because the the this vibe that I always heard in that album, obviously the the mix that you didn't do, his vocals are very. They're the way that he would perform live on an off night, almost. Yeah. And and it's yeah. very um. Yeah. It's a really it's really dry. It's very dry it's a very and dry sound. Yeah. yeah, some of the vocals were done after I I, I moved on. Um, now yeah. I, I just right. want to make something very very clear to everyone out there. So Daniel and me are best best friends. We're so close. It's you know little like brothers, and we've had many many talks. That's good to hear. Yeah, we've had many talks since about everything, and you know there's yeah. a lot of you know apologizing about that time and you know a lot of like oh god i wish i'd done this i wish i'd done that you know but also daniel was going through a lot of other things as well at that time and you know he had it in his mind how he wanted the record to be and the the the, the simplest way of explaining this is the man is a genius he can hear eight melodies strong melodies all going at once and identify all eight of them and they're clear as a whistle to him. Yeah. Most people, if you put three three strong melodies together, like most songs when you listen to them have three strong melodies at once most. It's the vocal melody, yeah. the, the probably the guitar riff, right? Drums and bass are doing a, a down below doing that. And that's, you know, it's, it's most music, if you listen to – any Beatles song, it's complicated music. It's doing incredible things, but there's never that much going on at once. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was the problem I was having was there was just too many ideas and it needed to be simplified. And unfortunately, it was my job to simplify and and I wasn't getting away with it. <laughs> Is that – you know? Because I, I've, something I've noticed re-listening to everything sort of in order – is that on Neil Ballroom, there's relatively few uh, multi-tracked vocals in That's terms right. of extra harmonies. Yeah. When, and then when, like you're not there for diorama yeah. and there's massive, yeah. massive, um, you know, harmonies. And it's beautiful. Yeah, it's fantastic. But I, I now you're saying this, I can sort of understand yeah. the, the pairing down approach is, is it just wasn't there for young modern. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, you know, I love complicated stuff. I love harmonies, and you know, I don't have a problem as long as it all works together, and it's not conflicting. Yeah. Because what happens when you've got mel- too many strong melodies all at once is they they conflict and they take away from each other, and and then no one wins. You know, um, and that that was that was the problem. Um, that happened with that record. Um, but, uh, you know, me and Daniel have, have, have spoken. I saw him, um, last Christmas time and, um, you know, we've spoken about working together numerous times and I, I do believe it will happen. Um, I just, I just, I just want to make a a rock record with him. You know, I don't want to make a drum, a drum machine program record with him. Or dance. Yeah. Oh, I don't mind making a dance record, but it it has to be. I want real musicians in there, and yeah. I, and and we've talked about it, um, and I really believe it's going to happen. And um, you know, I, I, 
I absolutely love Daniel. I mean, he's, I love, love the guy, you know, he's, he's an incredible person. And, um, I, yeah, he's, he's great. You know, there's, it, 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 you know, it, it was upsetting that I didn't get to finish that, that album, but, but, you know, the guy who, who mixed, um, young modern, David he's the, yeah, yeah. So he, he, he produced, um, diorama. So, yeah. so it's all a family thing, you know, and he's yeah. a really clever guy. He's a lovely guy. He's really, yeah. really clever. So when I listen to, um, to young modern, I actually really like Di- it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great I, album. I, like, I mean, I like the mixes that, that were done. So, so nothing, nothing yeah. was lost in the end. And I think, you know, I, I do think that, uh, uh, Bottrell, you know, he's a great record producer and he probably also yeah. said to Daniel, look, you can't have all this going on. So, um, he, he is just, he, yeah, he just needed to hear it. Not from yeah. you maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and probably, yeah. Hearing it from an, a second person. It's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> I can't have the kazoo yeah. and, the, and the violin and the violin pit and the, um, yeah. And the sitar. <laughs> uh, oh, and also, you know, the, the, yeah. the craziest thing of of course with uh, with the Young Modern album was that um, Van Dyke Parks was involved. So Van Dyke Parks yeah. is as bad as Daniel with that stuff. I mean, he's just like we yeah. have a hundred. They had a whole orchestra. Another genius, you know. We had an eighty-piece orchestra on that record. Yeah, because we all we we all went to um, we all went. Wow. together to do that that was hilarious it was god that was such a funny session because because um van dyke parks is very funny it's a very very funny guy yeah yeah and um i mean i think me and daniel and paul paul came as well we were in the control room when all the strings were being recorded and hearing van dyke talk to the the, the you know the players uh, who didn't yeah. speak English. So there was a translator. <laughs> I mean, he was, you know, he's got a very sort of, um, a very theatrical voice, let's say, kind of camp, yeah. like kind of theatrical. And he would, you know, there was one moment I remember where they were playing one of the parts and it's going along and it's like, all this stuff. And then he suddenly taps his stick on the podium you know, tap, 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 like really loud. He say, and he goes, no, 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 no. <laughs> and everybody's looking at him going like, he says, way too froggy, way, way, way too froggy. We don't want <laughs> it to be froggy. And the translator says like, excuse me, uh, froggy? What? What is this froggy? He says, you know, nasty little green things, ribbit, ribbit, ribbit. They're everywhere. <laughs> we can't have that. And so then this translator would have to translate that and everybody's scratching their head going, what are they talking about? And he was, yeah. what he was meaning was like when the violins go, go, you know, they make a, he, he wanted it to be smoother. Yeah. He didn't want it to go ring, ring, ring. And the, the rip sound was like a frog to him. So if you can imagine a whole day of that, you know, and another yeah. one was when he was like, going 
you know, no, 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 no. And uh, they'd stop and he'd go, he says, this is a young, sexy band. And then he'd say, let me show you. And he did this dance, like a disco dance <laughs> up on his podium, right? Because he was way up high so they could see him. Yeah. And he says, this is what I want. I want sexy. I want sexy, sexy, sexy. And we were just pissing ourselves laughing. We were just like, you know, to the point of like not being able to breathe kind of laughing. It was just <laughs> hilarious. And the whole thing, and wow. we were in this beautiful building, a huge, huge, huge building where I think, I think it was Leonardo da Vinci or oh, it's one of, oh my God, maybe it was Einstein. It was like some, one of those, one of those, you know, the one of the great inventors used to teach yeah. in in a particular right. room, and it had this vibe. Uh, and you know, and obviously, you know, eighty musicians all in there, and it just sounded beautiful. Um, but yeah, so many, wow, so many great memories of working with them. I mean, in, incredible. It's an incredible, um, you know, the difference between what was going on with that record and going back to like freak show. It's, you know, these yeah. three surfy kids <laughs> you know, yeah. playing pranks. They would do this thing with, with freak show where, um, they, they would, that's right. I'd be in, in this, in the control room and the buzzer would buzz and there was two, two entrances. And so I'd go and answer the buzzer and there'd be nobody there. And then the other buzzer would buzz. I'd go up over to the other buzzer, which was in the other room, to let them in, and that wouldn't answer. And then they'd buzz the other one. So they were basically running <laughs> from one side yeah. of the building to the other really quickly and buzzing it and running. It's like going in an elevator and pushing all the buttons. You know, it was like every day was just like that, <laughs> you know. It's yeah. so funny. Yeah, and another, oh, that's another an instant I remember where they they got a video camera. Like, I think uh, Ben had a video camera, and <laughs> they were talking about it, and they were saying, "Oh, wouldn't it be cool if we video cam if we put the if if we put the video camera inside a flight case and run the flight case through the down the hall." They had, there was a long hall yeah. and they go, oh yeah, but it, it might get damaged. It was like, oh Ben, okay, well you go in the flight case with the video camera <laughs> and he go, oh yeah, that's better. So he'd get inside this big drum flight case. They go up to the end of the, the corridor. He's inside and it's locked and he's got the video camera running <laughs> and the other two, you know, Daniel and Chris would push it and it would just go bang, bang, crash, bang, and screams <laughs> and Ben going, you know, let me out, you bastards. And then he, then they'd undo it and he'd get out and it'd be funny. And they'd go, okay, now let's watch the video. What do you think the video looked like? It's just completely black, you know, it's dark. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it was just like such chaos and, 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 uh, oh, it's, it's just great, and and that video, it's a really funny video because it builds up yeah. to him getting in, and then it goes black, and then you hear screaming, and then he comes out, and then he's calling everybody names, you know, 
and the corridor got so damaged. I think they had to pay for the damage. Really funny. <laughs> Another one. I'll just tell you one other funny thing because it's good to end on on on, on these kind of things. That um, Daniel, uh, even even back in Frog Tom, wasn't eating a lot, so we'd eat. He'd finish first, and he'd get on the phone, and he'd prank call people, just random numbers, and pretend <laughs> he put on different voices and pretend to be different people, and mostly he would do things like pretending to do some survey and he would say um you know hello is, there, is uh could i have the youngest member of the house uh do a survey and then some kid or teenager would come on and he'd ask them the craziest questions <laughs> and and um and then he did this one where it was like uh, uh uh, he'd ask the question. He said, "Who sounds m- more like Daniel Johns?" And he'd sing, and and he said, "Or this person." And he'd sing, and the person, the person <laughs> would go, and he had it on speakerphone. He said, "Oh, uh, uh, oh, none of them. Daniel's a much better singer than that." And Daniel would go, "Ah, oh, well, it might be a surprise for you to hear that I am Daniel Johns." And they go, "No, you're not." And it's just like it was, <laughs> it was just so funny, and he. He was like, right, next one I'm going to do, I'm going to tell him I'm, I'm me. So he'd just pick up the phone and ring people, and he'd hang up on them if there was no nobody who knew Silverchair, for no kids. And he'd do these prank calls with people who were Silverchair fans. Um, and those people probably still think it wasn't really Right. Him. So so if you're listening to this, people out there of, of, of that age, if you – got a phone call from someone who said he was Daniel Johns back during the time of uh, Freak Show. It was him. And it was so <laughs> funny. It was so funny. Uh, he was singing and he was making up all kinds of things. It was just, yeah, yeah. Really That's great. amazing. Well, Nick, you could talk my ear off and I, I'd be happy to, to sit here for many, many hours, but uh, I, I think I should let you go. I probably need to eat something. I was going to yeah. say, is, is it not dinner time? It is dinner time. It's dinner time. And uh, yeah. Well, well, personally, just thank you for doing this and thank you for producing some of my favorite albums. Um, are you working on anything at the moment that you'd like to talk about? I, um, I've actually plug? just finished um, the Idols record. Yeah, you know, um, and uh, I think well, two songs have come out. Uh, one called "Grounds" came out last week, so check that out. That's a that's a they're they're a killer. They're a great band uh, from Bristol in in England. So I finished that. Uh, so that's that's the next album that comes out that I did. Right now, I'm working with the the Distillers, um, which uh, oh, wow. you know Brody, who's the singer, is from Melbourne. Uh, but he's been living yeah. out here for a while and they haven't made an album for 15 years. And I have to tell you, it's yeah. a killer record. It's so good. Oh, great. It's very, very fast and loud. So that's what I'm finishing at the moment. Um, yep. Yeah, and, uh, and hopefully I'll be coming to Australia later in the year. I hope. That would be yes. great. And, um, well, again- hopefully I'll meet up with Daniel, see if I can convince him to go in the studio. <laughs> that would be amazing. That would be everybody's uh uh i guess wish well well that'd be be my wish too. be great be great yeah. thanks for inviting me onto this this is uh it's oh, always great to anytime this stuff 
once again, thank you so much, Nick. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Well, you have uh, go and have a good dinner. Will do. Well, there you have it. The one and only Nick Launay. Once again, I have to thank Nick for his generosity in both time for coming on the show and in sharing so much. Nick is on Instagram at Nick Launay and his website is Launay.com. That's L-A-U-N-A-Y.com. The band he mentions working with at the end there is Idols, I-D-L-E-S. And you can find them on Spotify and wherever else you get music. As for me, I'm currently working on the diorama episode, and as you can imagine, it's a big one. Because of that, I'm going to take at least the next fortnight off. Actually, that's not true. I'll be working through that period. But in terms of this podcast feed, there will be no new episode as usual. But rest assured, it's all for the greater good of getting a diorama episode that comes within striking distance of doing it justice. As always, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell anyone who might be interested rate, review, subscribe, email me if you like, follow me on social, share my content and tag me in it. That really helps spread the word. All the info is in the description. Once again, thank you for listening. See ya. See ya.